Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Mike coming from the uh, the new studio here, um, and I'm with Dr. Jeremy Zima from Wisconsin Lutheran College, and today we're going to talk about Martin Luther and music. We have a chalkboard in our new studio with all sorts of um, um, ideas and people we want to have on the podcast, kind of a, a running idea board, and um if you notice, we have quite a few uh, professors, Jeremy, up there that we'd like to have on. Um, we would like to have, for instance, we'd like to have um, Kirsten Gersett come on art. She's been dodging me to come on here. So we, um, we, we would like to have her on for art. We'd like to have um, Amy Hermanson, the only doctor in the house. She's married to Peter, who you know, um, and to come on. Uh, to talk Milton. She has been dodging us too. Uh, Rebecca uh, Parker Fedewa. Did I get that one right? Yeah, I can't remember which one comes first. Um, she's a listener and we like to have her on, but she's been a little bit sort of reluctant. So we have to twist some arms there. And then Angela Abling, who I've really tried to get on here, she is uh, an expert in environmental science. And I told her, and I'm saying it out loud now so that she comes on, that uh, as far as I know about environmental science is that Jesus will just keep putting oil back into the ground and we'll be okay. So I don't know what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And so, Angela, if you're listening and if you want to correct me on that, maybe you should come on to the show. Anyway, I bring that up because we have these uh, lists of ideas and professors and we just have uh, on the bottom more Zima exclamation point because the the uh listeners want more zima and so we brought uh, jeremy back on you know who never ducks you this that's guy right. that's it's like right. i always tell people i'm cheap and available <laughs> and so we're going to talk to uh jeremy about uh, martin luther and music and then uh for the free-for-all we're kind of kind of take a different tact uh we're going to talk about jeremy's uh, latest trip to prague um kind of an interesting story of how he well, why he went there. And so it'll be a little bit of, hey, I went to Europe and this is beautiful, but also ask questions about what it means to be a rock star with roadies yeah. and stuff like that. So you have to... You have national to, roadies. We'll, we'll get to that um, after our disclaimer. This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time, it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because, well, as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends. And don't let us get in the way. And we're back with our uh, free-for-all section, which is going to be more about uh, Jeremy's uh, story about going to uh, Europe recently, and I'll set the stage for you, and then you can then you can take it from there. Um, Jeremy's a rock star. He has his own band, 
and uh, he was uh, invited by a very large company. His band was invited, hired by a very large company to play for their, I don't know what, week long, mm -hmm. whatever, blah, blah, blah in Prague. And uh, literally, literally someone paid him to go all the way to Eastern Europe to play rock and roll. And so we at the podcast feel like we need to explore this, what it means to be a rock star, a traveling rock star yeah. and, and all of the, the ins and outs of that, the challenges and the uh, exciting things about that. By the way, this must be a thing that big companies go and take their people to Prague. This is the second time I've heard mm. this. Is it cheap or something yes. like that? Well, yeah, okay. it's cheap and it's beautiful. And, um, They've got really, I mean, they really do have some, some pretty cool facilities. So, and it's a, it's a walkable city too. So you can get out and see stuff pretty easily. Um, but again, I think it is cheap. Although I will say that um, we did hear from, we did hear from the organizer that everything there cost three times what it would have to, to do the same stuff in the United States. Mm -hmm. But for Europe, it's cheap. Sure. And so, and part of, part of that, that, that expense is that, um, uh, people in, in Europe work on, I don't mean to make generalizations, but we found this to be true uh, in our own planning, our part of it. They, they work on European time, mm -hmm. which is not as fast as American yep, time. Yep. Not always as efficient, unless you're maybe in Germany. Yeah, but even, even then, they're, um, they're quite, they're, they're quite hidebound too, because I was in the, um, uh, the uh, oh, the uh, Zeitschriftsabteilung um, and, uh, of the, of the um, National Library, and they deliver materials for you twice a day. <laughs> so you get there, you buy your library card, which is five, five bucks or something like that. And you submit a written request for what you would like them to pull because you're essentially in like this room and it's got periodicals in it, you know, but there's nothing good there. So you have to ask them to, to get it for you. So if you submit it before 10 a.m., they'll bring it to you by noon. Mm -hmm. If you get it to them after that, it doesn't come to like three and if you're an American kid whose German's not very good and they don't like you, <laughs> you may have to have a charming older British man intervene for you so you can get anything at all. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, they're more efficient in Germany, but they've got their, their rules too. So a uh, large company um, makes this huge trip. It, they must have been doing some business there. I yeah, so, so I'll, I'll, set the, I'll set the stage a little bit. This is, a, this is sort of a specialty thing because you'll hear about, and it's not a large company. Here's the thing. It's, an, it's no, a really? niche thing. It's actually a, a family-owned a family company. Everyone that we talk to at that company um, uh, has been there, and we've worked for them for a few years now, has been there uh, you know, 20 years plus. Mm. Um, but essentially what this is was uh, it's, a, it's an industry convention for uh, players in the aerospace engineering field. And, um, and so what they do is every year all of these manufacturers and the airlines that they're selling to um, and supporting um, get together at one place because um, it's just more efficient that way. Um, and what they do is um, the, the airlines will, this is kind of unique for a conference, you know, being an academic, you think, you, know, you go to a conference, you hear papers, you look at presentations, workshops, that sort of thing. No, um, essentially what it is is, a, is a, um, a centralized place for the airlines to complain to their manufacturers about what isn't working with their products um, and then for the um, companies to then publicly respond with how they are going to fix that problem going forward. So the company that we work for, um, they make um, 
um, communication systems for for um, airplanes. And so, like, if you in, in any commercial jet airliner, they'll have between two and twenty of their units. So, if you think when the one of the more simplistic things that they do is um, when the captain comes over the the uh, the headset and says, you know, we'll be departing Milwaukee or whatever, or then he he clicks a button and he talks only to the flight attendants or just up in the cabin. They make that. And then they make more complicated stuff, but they do that. And then they also make the consoles that house those units. Um, and the, the niche that they really serve, I guess, is that they also do all of their own manufacturing in-house. Mm. So they're one of the only companies that do this. Um, I learned this all, by the way, on a long Uber ride to dinner with, um, <laughs> with, with one of their engineers. Uh, and, uh, and so kind of even when they lose, they win because even if one of their direct competitors uh, gets their product placed with the new line of Boeings, well, chances are our company is going to actually manufacture that sure. for them. So that's what they do. But anyway, they have this week-long conference where they get together and there is like public reprisals. And so after, after, after uh, Southwest is done dressing down everybody mm -hmm. all day um these companies then throw huge parties like the hospitality suites are insane again coming from the academic world if you uh if you go to a place where they have um now i know like you go to the here we still stand conference and it sounds like they've got quite the swanky mm -hmm. you know gamut the kite kind of setup and um i've been to the this was many years ago but i was to the uh, the Wells Conference on Worship in the Arts several years ago, and they had a very nice spread after the conference and everything. But if you go to an academic like musicology conference, what you get is you have to make friends with someone from an Ivy League school, and then maybe you'll be able to get some free hors d'oeuvres mm -hmm. and, and a free beer, right? Well, no. At this, every company in every one of these conference rooms, they've got usually a themed party where they'll lay out probably an entire dinner for you. Like, we had two carving stations one night. Mm. Um, uh, and then they'll have some sort of entertainment. So bands, much more common in America, it's easier to get bands. Um, but uh, so our, our company, obviously, they flew us in, so they had us. Um, other sorts of entertainment, um, don't, tell, don't tell customs, but I was able to bring home a, a real uh, hand-rolled in front of me Cuban cigar mm. because Cuban tobacco and Cuban tobacco rollers are not illegal in, in the Czech Republic. <laughs> and what, what is illegal in the Czech <laughs> not Republic? Not much. Um, so so it, it, it's all very, and it's all paid for, right? There is, your money is no good there. It's on the companies. And, and I understand it's a, it's a giant tax write-off, but, um, but it's, a, it's a different level of um of of conference going than sure. what most people are familiar with and so you're the entertainment for this specific party yeah and, and consider this consider this this blew my mind now, obviously it's a captive audience the only you know we're, when you're in a band obviously you're usually uh responsible for drawing right that you're advertising and and people hire you and pay you based on your ability to fill their venue or their festival um that's not the case here. You know, I mean, it's a command performance. The only people that are invited are the five to 600 people that are at this conference. So it's not even, you know, a gigantic conference. Mm -hmm. um, and at any given time, I bet you maybe the most people we had in our, in our hospitality suite was maybe 50. Mm -hmm. And they, they thought, from their perspective, it was a smashing success. <laughs> Just like it was a great success. So... Uh, you know, again, very different, but um, the part of the reason I think that we got invited back was because the president of the company that we work for is a huge music fan, and he lives in Miami, 
and he's got um, he's got a. I don't know if he really plays that much. I mean, he's he's an amateur. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he plays guitar, but he um, he has a full blown music studio in his house, mm-hmm. and the company he worked for before the original owner died. Um, they had a full-blown music studio at the company. Now, once the company went into a trusteeship, the board of directors said, we can't spend money on a recording <laughs> studio as just like as a pet project. Right, right. Um, but anyway, he came and saw us last year in Dallas. So this is the third year that we've worked for this company. They found us randomly because the conference was in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And um, the president, it was kind of a small year, so he didn't bother coming that year. Um, but their VP of uh, marketing really liked us, and he said... I'm going to just ex- make the executive decision that we're going to fly to Dallas the next year. And I think, I think we really need the president needs to see you. And so he did. And we really clicked and, and, uh, their organizer for the conference said, well, we probably won't have you in Prague because the amount of money it's going to take and the logistics are just too much. Mm-hmm. And the president said, see you in Prague. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly how it went. And so, and so, uh, we, we got to work on it already, uh, probably in January and, and we're able to get it kind of hooked up. So that's awesome. Um, and uh, we should tell, we should, uh, mention the name of your band and what kind of music. Sure. You well, it's not rock and roll. It's country music. Uh, my, my band is called rebel grace and, uh, and you know what? It's not even original country music, which is it's sort of the funny part, but, um, we do covers, but but again, you know, you, you meet up with someone, and this is a the, this conference is always it's all the same people, and so you get kind of a reputation. So so the company that we work for, and I don't necessarily want to out them on the mm-hmm. podcast, but they they ha- they're getting a little bit of a reputation, right? If everyone's competing for um, to have people in their hospitality mm-hmm. suites, and people know that they can see this band, and they can mm-hmm. hang out with the band, and, and interact, mm-hmm. and ask questions, and. Um, they start to look forward to it because it's sure. not like they have the opportunity to see us all the time. It's like, oh, I go to that conference and I and I see that band mm-hmm. on uh, on two nights of the conference. So that was that was pretty cool. So that leads me to the next question: What's it feel like to be a famous artist that travels all over the world? Yeah, that was <laughs> that was a once in a lifetime thing because um, you know the reality check was, um, and I'll, I'll back up and kind of talk about how great this trip was. But the night after we got back, so we came, we flew in Friday night. Saturday, Saturday night, we were loading into a bar by ourselves, handling, you know, all the gear, um, you know, playing a, playing a, a, you know, four hour, you know, a four hour show to a, it wasn't a bad audience, but I would say it was a little indifferent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came up to a couple of ladies that had been dancing uh, quite a bit during the show and they were hanging out afterwards. And so I just... I just came up and, and said, "Did you have a Did you have a good time?" And uh, and and one of them said, "Yeah, it was so much fun. You know, it was, it was great to get out and 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 dance." And her friend looked at me just stone cold, and she goes, "No, you guys are boring." <laughs> and I said, "Well, hmm, sorry you feel that way. Can't win them all. <laughs> so that'll that'll cut you right back down to size real quick." <laughs> but it was cool because because I will say this company, um, not only did they pay for all of the expenses but then they paid us and you would think this is all too good to be true you mean we get they're going to fly us there and here's the thing we only had to perform two nights out of this deal and it was like a tuesday and a wednesday night so they could have easily flown us in say sunday night and then we could have you know rehearsed and checked on monday um because we we had to bring in so the one thing that we we sold ourselves on this a little bit we said well if we just gave you one number and then 
And then we found in the Czech Republic the staging, the lighting, the sound, everything that we need, our rental instruments, stuff like that, because you can't bring everything on the airplane. Um, would that be worth something to you? And they said, yes, it would. Mm -hmm. um, and so we did that chasing, um, and, and, uh, and we were able to find those, those people. So, so you know, if, if it's someone you never worked with before, you don't know what equipment they're bringing. I mean, they tell you what they're bringing, but are they really? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so they, we could have rehearsed on Monday, you know, then played Tuesday, Wednesday. They could have flown us out first thing on Thursday. Mm -hmm. um, but, no, they flew us in Saturday. We had a free day on Sunday. We had a free day on Monday because the uh, equipment didn't get there till Tuesday. So we worked, I don't know, for like five hours on Tuesday, played for an hour and a half. No, it was three hours. On, uh, on Tuesday night, um, had all day Wednesday to sightsee, came back and played for three hours on, on Wednesday night. Um, had all day on Thursday to sightsee, mm -hmm. and then we then they flew us out finally Friday morning. Nice. So uh, quick, just give me two or three things that uh, sell me. Uh, I've been to Prague, but uh, uh, it's kind of a hidden gem that yep. a lot of people haven't. Uh, it's one of those places where you go to Paris and you see the Eiffel Tower and you go, that's great. Looks just like the picture, but you don't have a whole lot of pictures of Prague. And so it's all new and beautiful yep. at the same time. And so, uh, sell, sell our, our listeners on why they should go to Prague. Get, give me two or three things. Okay. So, um, I will give you, uh, one, uh, for a European city, it's very affordable. Um, they are not on the Euro, which I know is trading, uh, favorably with the dollar. It's about one to one right now, but, um, their currency is about 20, 20 to 25 to one on the dollar. So uh, your money goes a long way in Prague. So, um, so that's a really practical reason. Uh, two, it's beautiful. It's a medieval city. It's one of the only major cities in Europe that's never been destroyed. Um, it's, it's not been wiped out by natural disaster or by world war or by other sorts of conquests. So um, everything that was built in the 1200s, um, if it's been maintained, is still sitting there. Um, so I know uh, Notre Dame just burned down. You can go see St. Vitus. It's bigger. It's just as old, but it's the same style of early Gothic architecture. Um, same, same you know, kind of rose window. Um, but what's cool is you can see, depending on the neighborhood, you can, you can see the history of architecture. Mm -hmm. um, you can see everything from, from uh, you know, late medieval and early Renaissance up through, you know, 17th and 18th century, uh, you know, Maria Theresa, kind of like that kind of architecture. And then, I mean, even they've still let some of the Soviet era kind mm -hmm. of boring block buildings hang right. around. And so, so it's all there. And I would say even for a city that was under Soviet control for a long time, they didn't destroy much of it either. So it's, it's really well maintained. There's so many, if you like to see churches, there's so many cool ones from different eras. Uh, you know, you can see the, you can see the Gothic churches, the big stone ones. Um, one of my favorite ones, uh, Tyne Church in, in one of their, um, uh, squares downtown the old town square was really cool um it's baroque and so they have all the side altars and things and all the all the paintings uh, are from the 1650s and so you can see what liturgical art you know all the gold leaf and the filigree mm -hmm. so you can sort of see uh, if you're into liturgical art and things mm -hmm. like that you can you can see the history of it there too just by tracking with the churches and, and you'll see a number of number of different uh churches there so you'll have roman churches um orthodox churches um there's even a uh um, a hussite church uh mm -hmm. across the street uh from the tyne church uh that is an incredibly beautiful structure that they are ruining with um in my opinion with a pa 
and uh, other modern trappings. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, but that's I won't I won't step on that soapbox too hard. <laughs> but so 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 it's beautiful. It's affordable. It's really walkable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really walkable. Uh, uh, you've got you've got the Vltava River to orient you. It's also a city of um, lots of bridges, famous bridges to get across this major river. So that's cool. Of course, the Charles Bridge is uh, is is extremely famous. It's a it's a really romantic place. If you you know you can get really great pictures on it, walking across. The food is great. Um, the food is great, and it's cheap. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. It's cheap in tourist traps. Right. Like so so you know uh, also uh, something you may not think about because it's not Paris, but. Um, the coffee and the uh, the bakery is um, is to die for. It's on a, it's on a different level. They just do pastry and dessert um, much much better. Um, the bass player uh, commented to me. He says he says I have no idea how they how they can eat all this stuff and not be like you know nine hundred pounds. And and I, and we thought about it for a second because I thought this was worth mulling. And it's <laughs> and you know why? It's because portion sizes are are um, uh, achievable. So yes. if you, so if you get your if you go and you get a cappuccino, your cappuccino is coming in a six ounce cup, not right. a forty ounce you know right. big gulp. Um, <laughs> and no, you're walking everywhere, right? And well, right. We put in sometimes thirteen miles a day. Now they do have a very efficient public trans- transit system, you know, uh, from buses to um, to you know trains and everything. But if you get into the old town uh, where you there's none of that. Um, it's very picturesque. You you kind of feel like you're on a movie set because the streets are narrow and and the buildings are tall and it's just it's just really cool. Um, if you're worried about a language barrier because you say, well, you know, don't they speak uh, Czech there? Sure, um, but most people speak English. It's an international city, yeah. uh, at least enough to get to get around. A little reluct- more reluctantly in the Czech Republic than other places. I so think maybe, but um, you know, that's changed a lot too because one of the concerns that that. Uh, some people on our trip had was they were really worried that we weren't going to be able to find any fresh fruits and vegetables because if you if you look at a lot of the tourist information about that you know it's a it's a Slavic diet meat and potatoes and they can't always you know their climate isn't necessarily the greatest for growing some of these things and so you can't get it and so I I, I try to maintain a pretty healthy diet and so my wife is like I don't want to hear you complaining if you can't have a salad <laughs> I'm like well for one thing I'm going to eat the the, the food that's kind of unique to the Czech Republic mm-hmm. or things that I can't get elsewhere. But secondly, you know, point taken, we get there and admittedly, you know, we were staying in a five-star Hilton hotel. So fine. Uh, but on the exceptional breakfast buffet was literally a salad bar, like a green <laughs> salad bar with all the fixings. And I, I made sure to point that out to my wife uh, every day. Oh, by the way, did I mention that this company was so great? They said, we got to rent you hotel rooms anyway. You want to bring your wives? Yeah. And by the way, we'll pay for them too. Like every meal you eat on campus, every drink you have, every extra coffee you order, every glass of wine, every beer, you're charging to the room, right? We're like, well, we can pay for it. No, you're charging it to the room, right? <laughs> Wives too? Oh yeah, sure. Fantastic. So Prague, it, it really is a city that, that sells itself. Um, great opera, uh, if you're into that. A um, couple of opera houses. Uh, I got to see Don Giovanni um, at the Estates Theater, which is the theater that it was premiered in 1787. Nice. Um, and so it wasn't it wasn't a historical production. It was a it was a kind of a modern take on it. But uh, to be able to see it, it, the theater is still very much the way it would have been. Um, and so that's actually a living lesson as well, because um, the priorities in in concert music going have changed quite a bit in the last 150, 200 years. Um, and what I mean by that is that when you go to a concert or you go to see an opera, 
um, all the seats are focused on the stage and everyone's supposed to be very, very quiet. And of course, th that quiet aspect has, has, has bled in. But if you go to an old opera house, what you'll notice is that um, everything, the cheap seats are actually, they're not raked for one thing, and, and that's the floor. But then you have all these boxes and they're completely vertical and they're in a horseshoe-shaped ring around the stage. I was sitting not in a private box, but in one of the mezzanine levels and on one of the sides of the horseshoe. In order to see the stage, I had to lean out, fully flex, and look. And, and there was about 25% of the stage that was not visible to me. And my wife felt terrible. She had booked the tickets, and she thought, this is so bad. And I, I couldn't get over how cool it was mm -hmm. because you read about this in textbooks all the time, how, how something like opera is a social event. And you think about the way this – look, I can't see the stage, but I can see directly into every single box mm -hmm. that's across from me. And this is where, like, season ticket holders would have been, so, so people with money. And so if I have money and I have status, what am I at the opera to do? I'm there to check out all the other people with money and status and see what they're doing, right? What are they dressed like? Who did they invite to their box? And so you could, that whole thing just becomes like palpable and dare I say physical sure. um, in, the, uh, in that way. So, so those things are cool as well. Very nice. So the lesson is join a successful um, country band and uh, travel to Prague if you can. If you, you know what, it's good work if you can get it. I mean, everything that we thought, I, you just you just pinch, I think seven times or so, I pinched myself and thought, it can't be this good. There's got to be a catch. Something's going to break down. You know, some, there's going to be a misunderstanding some kind of way. Not at all. First class all the way. And, you know, I don't know if it'll ever happen again, but uh, it was pretty sweet. Very cool. All right. Thank you. And we will um, come back in a little bit and talk about Luther and music. and that is Luther on music. And maybe um, before we get into it, uh, uh, Dr. Zimmer, why don't I ask you to just give a brief uh, biography of yourself right now? What do you teach and, sure. and where you went to school and stuff? Just to remind our listeners, you've been on a few times, but uh, we are gaining new listeners all the time. Um, so why don't you just give us a, give us a recap? Sure. Uh, so I teach in the music department here at the college. Uh, it's a it's a small liberal arts department. Uh, we have four full time faculty members. So my my training is in um, uh, historical musicology. So you can say I'm a, a music historian. Uh, my my academic specialty is uh, early 20th century uh, German opera, kind of broadly and and specifically um, operas about the creation of art. It's bigger. It's a bigger topic than you think. But um, but anyway. Um, that's kind of where I'm coming from. So, uh, and I also have secondary interest in jazz music. Um, I, I, I uh, got my Bachelor of Arts degree uh, here at WLC. I then went and got a Master of Music degree at Western Illinois University. It was a double major in jazz performance and, and musicology. I did a, uh, a lengthy master's thesis on uh, jazz guitar in uh, Europe and America uh, before 1942. And then I went on to the University of Wisconsin-Madison um, and um, did a, a dissertation on um, the aesthetics and economics of the early 20th century German Kunstleroper or artist opera. 
and have been teaching here full-time since 2017, part-time since, since 2013. Um, and so, uh, as, as you heard in the free-for-all, I'm also uh, a guitarist. So here at the college, um, I teach guitar lessons, guitar class. I teach music theory, music history. Basically, if it's academic music, I teach basically everything that's not um, an instrument other than guitar um, or band and choir or conducting. Um, I do, however, also currently direct the jazz band. So I did that this last year, and I think I'm going to, again, at least for part of this year, we're getting a new band director here at the college, very excited about that. And so he and I are going to work out how that works mm-hmm. going forward. Excellent. So, and you do have an interest in, in uh, Reformation theology and history oh, yeah. a little bit. Big and time. So um, that those come crashing together, um, especially when it comes to Martin Luther on music. And so if I say Luther on music, What's the first thing that comes to mind? Congregational singing, um, uh, returning the uh, re- returning the the singing back to the congregation, uh, writing hymns that that have strong uh, uh, pedagogical value, uh, and of course, and of course, just Luther's general value on the place of music in art within the liturgy, within the life of the Christian. Um, you know, of all the reformers, um, he values it. The Lutheran Reformation, I think, valued uh, music and the cultivation of musicianship and and of of, of liturgy and and hymns, um, and excellence in music more than any any of the other uh, reformers. So when I think of Lutheran music, um, I, I definitely think about first and foremost congregational hymns. You know, uh, preaching through music, and then also the high value within within the the worship life of of the congregation. Yeah, I think uh, you know this is this is a um, an oversimplification, but uh, the history of music in the church, uh, you know, very early on, it was uh, definitely confessional. Here we sing, um, and and propaganda is not the right word, but here's a tune with a verse that teaches something, and it usually is going to teach against a heresy, and the heretics had their tunes mm-hmm. against it and stuff like that, and um, <clears throat> once you start getting into uh, early and then middle and then late medieval age, um, the, the the talent and the, the beauty of the music uh, explodes, of course, but there is then the professional choir kind of yep. thing. And so I when I teach uh, worship, I teach uh, uh, the kids just to think about this uh, little um, ball of tin foil or aluminum foil. And here's the core uh, word and meal uh, sermon, song, um, and a a decent, I think fairly full liturgy, but you start adding tinfoil over the years, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And both to the liturgy, to the prayers, uh, to the architecture and all of it's beautiful and wonderful and great, or at least, uh, its intention was, um, becomes a very big ball of foil. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so you have awesome chant, you have awesome stuff, but um, that takes a s- certain amount of skill and training. And there maybe is a gap between the people in the, we would say pews today, although they stood um, <clears throat> and, and the professional choirs, but in the same way, the professional clergy versus there. And, and, and uh, the Lutheran Reformation then uh, does fight against that a little bit. Um, and so maybe talk to that about uh, how significant it is for the Lutheran Reformation to wrestle music, 
mm-hmm. um, away from the professionals without dumbing it down, without whatever. Well, I would say, okay, this is this is great. So, um, right, the the big the big the big problem that someone like Luther is going to identify, not just in music, but in a lot of areas of liturgical life, right, is the problems that come with professionalization. Um, and of course, there's a theological aspect to this too. That just by by doing the work, by showing up, um, by showing up, that that you're you're earning some sort of you know um, sanctification points or forgiveness points. Um, and so, but we'll leave it in the hands of professionals. Mm-hmm. And um, the music that th- look the for sure in big churches, the the music that was performed week to week is by Luther's day very complicated very complicated um um it definitely takes a lot of professionals look there are thousands at this time thousands and thousands of chants um most of which uh they will have choir books you know to a certain extent but most of them have to be learned by ear and through rote training so i mean this is just part of your 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 daily your daily job um but the congregation yeah they are completely out in the cold also remember um all of this is taking place in latin Mm-hmm. which is the official language of the church and the people I- that are that are there worshiping almost none of them speak or read latin because if you would have gone to uh, university or you know to study these things um you probably you'd probably be one of the professional clergy right you'd, you'd be one of those one of those people that would be that would be uh on the stage and not necessarily in in the metaphorical pews so uh, for Luther uh, and, and this belief, this this belief in the the priesthood of, of all believers, and also you know realizing that it's not the work itself mm-hmm. that that creates you know faith or or forgiveness of sins um, or any of those things. You know, they're, they're, the congregation has to have faith. And how 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 are people converted? And how is is faith created? Well, you need a preacher. Right, some like words have to hit ears in order to do that. That's how that's how God works. And so, in order for words to hit ears in a comprehensible way, um, we need to a um, think about not in all times and all situations. Right, Luther is a little ambivalent about this, and I can talk about that as well. But but we're going to want to get as many things as we can into German so that people can understand things in their native tongue. Um, and then also when we, when, when it comes to this highly complicated, um, uh, oh, the music historian Richard Truscan refers to it as ars perfecta, right? The, just the, this perfect, this perfect art, this, this, this high craft that, um, it's almost like a, it's, it's really a game of insiders baseball to know what's all going on in, the, in that very complicated counterpoint. Um, but to, but to, uh, return that to something that, um, congregations can 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 sing and that's and, and that's going to mean that we're going to start foregrounding um foregrounding easy to sing tunes mm-hmm. and um uh simplify a lot of the counterpoint and there's actually some really i think just interesting larger historical reasons for why that works in germany and it doesn't in other places um and that um and that is because uh luther is swimming in a in a current in which germany is not at the forefront of any um, stylistic uh, change in music. So, so the places where, where innovation is happening in music, um, in church music, is France and Italy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Germany's kind of a backwater. 
And so what they do is because they're a backwater and they hire out, all the princes hire out their musicians from France and, and Italy, um, is sort of like for the same reason we still dance the polka in Wisconsin. And the only time they dance it in Germany is at, you know, some sort of heritage festival, right? That's not what the kids in the clubs are dancing. Mm -hmm. It was in 1848, but <laughs> it's not now. Um, but we still dance it is because, you know, uh, certain things, they go out and they just sort of stick. Uh, there are older song forms, uh, the what becomes known as German bar form, which if you look at many Reformation era hymns, not all, you will find they're written in this. And German bar form is really easy to remember. It's A-A-B. So you have, if you think of the melody, you have a line, uh, maybe four bars, four, four measures, where you have a certain melody, and then the next line is the same melody or one very, very close to it. And you have a third line with a contrasting melody that brings it all home and, 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 and the poetry follows along. And mm -hmm. uh, that AAB, right? German bar form. Stalin, Stalin, Abgesang is the, is, the, is the German for it. That's something that by the Reformation is outmoded everywhere else. But Germany's behind the times. And so they hang on to that. There are also different ways of setting um, melodies uh, with harmony and with, with counterpoint that are also by the wayside, but because of the printing press, there's a whole lot of things that kind of relate. I haven't read Brand Luther, but I've heard you guys talk about it and the, you know, the printing press and things like that. But they do get, they do get like Italian popular songs, okay? And, and the way that you harmonize those is different than, than the way you would harmonize high church music. Um, it, it's, it's based on improvisation. So there are some sort of like quick hacks that, that with just a little bit of knowledge, you can make something that's maybe not terribly original, but you can make something that sounds good and mm -hmm. works. And a lot of the early Lutheran hymns are set up to work that way. That they're set up to work not on the, the highest, most esoteric academic music level. They're, they're set to work on the, on the still beautiful uh, level, but, but the level that's a little more readily understandable and maybe even able to be improvised. Sure. So let me, let me put it this way. So uh, uh, music uh, practica, right? The, mm -hmm. pra the practical rather than maybe a speculative kind of. Uh, so uh, maybe an oversimplification, but bringing down the form, not necessarily in a bad way, but so that it's accessible. But now let's talk about bringing up the people. Right. And so, yes. so it's not like, okay. And, and we get this, I point, sometimes I just hear this from especially older generations. Well, it was all fancy and complicated in the Roman Catholic church and Luther saved us from Latin and all this kind of stuff. Like he was just kind of this dumb, dumb. And, uh, he made it, he made it all simple for the regular people. Okay. Much more about bringing the people up. So maybe we could think about, okay, music needs to be accessible and singable and we need to be able to have artists who can deal with this and people who can sing it, but it also means training people. So the person that you want to read about this, if I'm going to like, you know, go 1517 network and throw out a book reference mm -hmm. is, um, is our Missouri Synod um, colleague, Joe Hurl, who teaches at um, Concordia, Nebraska. Um, and he wrote a book called, it's on Oxford University Press, um, Worship Wars and Early Lutheranism. Mm -hmm. um, but what he's done is he's taken a lot of He's taken a, a, a close look at what the early Lutheran, say, grade school slash high school education or the equivalent of it would have been for boys and girls, it should be noted. Uh, nowhere else in the world were girls uh, being taught to read, write, and yes, um, uh, uh, read and write music as well. So let's talk about bringing, bringing the level of musicianship up. One thing um, that I want to mention is that 
everyone who says that Luther just wanted to get everything into German um, for the common people, they're just wrong. Okay, right. The first thing you need to know about Luther is that he loved Latin and he loved learning. He's a university professor, for goodness sake. And so to him, he was very reluctant to make a German mass. Now, there's a couple reasons for that. Um, but Luther said quite explicitly that if you are in a congregation that is attached to a university or is in an otherwise learned community um, or attached maybe to a, a, uh, a religious school, that, that the use of Latin uh, should be maintained as, as much as it can be because it's good for the the practice of those students in the school it's good you know i mean it, it is the professional and religious language of of the day so if you're if you're growing educated humans educated humans need to speak latin at this time mm -hmm. so it's good if they get it in church as well um the other reason he didn't he was reluctant and the german mass only comes later is because what he didn't want to do and this has to do with music again what he didn't want to do is transcribe all of the latin uh chants psalm tones uh response tones all of those things that are that are meant melodically to flow with latin mm -hmm. and just put the german equivalent on it because it doesn't work musically and mm -hmm. so he knew that there was a certain amount of creative composition that was going to go into that to create new tones and chants to go with the the liturgy in german and he didn't want to hack it mm -hmm. so it took him a while and he had to do some consulting with um with with professional musicians that he trusted, Johann Walter, um, Walter um, uh, chief among them. But back to bringing, okay, so um, br bringing up uh, in the Lutheran schools, the kids were, were explicitly taught music. And this is, this is part of Luther's design. This doesn't happen by accident. So part of their, part of their daily curriculum, again, Joe Hurl actually, uh, somewhere I think I have a, a handout uh, from a paper he gave at the American Musicological Society conference last year um, that talks about this, like, in their day, they spent at least an hour on singing and music instruction. And so what kind of instruction would they have been getting? Um, well, they would, have been, they would have been learning tunes by memory, but they would have also been learning how to, uh, once they're older, t to harmonize, um, to create counterpoint, to maybe improvise it a little bit, but also to, to write out simple uh, harmonizations uh, for, these, for these tunes and maybe even do a little bit of... A little bit of, I don't know, free composition, probably not. Um, to be honest, part of the reason that music is, music is a liberal art, right? It's one of the seven classical liberal arts. But it's not music the way we think of it today, the way it's taught in university. It's much more a theoretical and speculative study. And that's what, by the way, Martin Luther would have had um, in his university mm -hmm. training as well. So he, we know, we've got people, the scholars have gone back and forth on how much of a musician Luther was. The current sentiment is that um, he was pretty good. And I can provide evidence for that if you'd like. But, but remember, so for Luther, yeah, it's, it's, it's getting it to a level where, where, where common people can't understand it. But just like with the catechisms, I mean, it's not good enough to, to sort of raise it all to the ground mm -hmm. and, and leave it there. Um, he's trying to train up an entire generation of future lay people and, and church workers that are going to be familiar, know the hymns, have them, have them by heart. And, of course, they're also going to be then ingesting that doctrine that's in those hymns and, and learn how to how to play and how to, you know, compose in that, in that way. Yeah. So not just, uh, raising up a generation who's going to know the faith via music. I mean that, I mean, if you look at Luther's hymns, many of them are catechetical yes. in, in nature. In fact, there's one for each chief part of the, of the catechism. This was an avenue of teaching. And so, you know, don't really need 
you know, it's it's not, I mean, it's fine, but, you know, 11 verses on the Ten Commandments, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that was very good for teaching, um, but that wasn't my favorite hymn to sing in, you know, <laughs> in church. Mm -hmm. um, of course, he, he, he does have, have more uh, hymns that are uh, a little bit more suitable just for worship rather than a pedagogical uh, setting. Um, so it's not just that, though. It is training a new generation that is going to produce music for yeah the generations. Yeah, I mean, to come. We're, they're learning music for music's sake. <laughs> yeah. I, they're 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 learning it the way we would think about learning music in in music class. So we're studying we're studying older models, mm -hmm. um, and we're um, and, and you know, in to whatever degree they would have within that curriculum, then also producing uh, new works based on those. I mean, look. Luther himself, he was educated a little bit in music for sure. When he did his master's uh, work, he would have been educated in music. We know he was a, a capable lute player. That is not something he would have learned in school, by the way. So, again, you know, people who learn how to play instruments and to be singers, that's an apprenticeship sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's different than the academic study of music. It's not like Luther went to Erfurt and hooked up with the local, you know, hippie lute teacher, <laughs> right? Because, you know, guitar. Um, we're a different breed. But... But we know that he learned to play that instrument, and we know that he knew how to sing, and we knew, and we know that that through his study and singing in choirs, um, that he knew how to improvise harmony using the conventions of, of 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 his day. But we also know that he was he studied the the high church music. One of his favorite um, uh, composers is is Josquin, right? I mean, and this is a uh, one of the most famous renaissance composers who writes some of the most difficult music and he understands that that has a place too and it has its own intrinsic value um but at the same time he's going to say you know that's that's beautiful kind of for its own sake and would everybody could understand that mm -hmm. you know that level of of complexity um but for we want our worship to do something a little bit different than than the roman catholic mass and so we need we need different we need different forms of, of expression to do that. Mm -hmm. So let's compare and contrast maybe uh, the Radical Reformation with, with the Lutheran Reformation. Um, yep. Very much about, okay, congregational s singing, this is going to teach people, this is valuable for the sake of music, period. Yep. Um, it's a gift from God. For boys and girls. So there is, a, there is a, not a, a, a Gnostic split, right, that, that we're spiritual over here and music's bad. Mm -hmm. Um, it's something that is embraced and, uh, the Calvin and Zwingli are a little bit different. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give you a phrase and you can see if, as an historian of music, if you agree with it or not, but I've heard it said that Calvin was fairly indifferent to music. Okay. And Zwingli was very concerned about music and its dangers. Yep. And so uh, get rid of all the art, including music. You can chant the Psalms. You can maybe use the instruments that are specifically mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, but uh, we're going to try to, as you said, raise the whole thing. Oh, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's true. And that's not just something that, that you'll hear in... Um uh, sort of Lutheran circles as we... It's, it's as not we polemical. It's no, historical. No, it's not. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, um, my guidepost on this, you know, my favorite music historian, Richard Taruskin, and he wrote an excellent, you know, five-volume set on the history of Western music, and, and you know, he, he would agree with this, and I think the research... There's a great book um, 
it's new. It's called. It's a small book, so it's it's pretty accessible. It's called Singing the Reformation, and the author's name escapes me right now. Um, but what she does is she compares and contrasts the um, the role of music, specifically congregational singing, in um, in the Lutheran, um, Calvinist, and then radical uh, kind of Zwinglian uh, reformations. Um, and 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 looks at at the role that it that it plays and how it interacts with uh, the theologies of those reformations more broadly. And she does, by the way, start by placing music within its at the time of the Reformation within the context of the uh, of the of the Roman Catholic Church and their their sort of idea of the one holy church. Um, and uh, so there's there's that. So that's a great book that you. Aaron can Lambert. That's it. Okay. Yep. Um, and, uh, so it's an accessible book. The, the, I think the, uh, uh, if you're into print culture and the printing press, you'll really like the chapter on Lutheranism because she is looking at the spread specifically of, um, cheaply produced songbooks, re- like religious hymnals, um, in Nuremberg, um, I- I- around the end of Luther's life. Um, and so how that, how that, um, informs the the doctrine uh of of the church in in nuremberg uh, and that sort of thing so there's there's a, there's material culture print culture there's theology there's there's music in there uh so it's a it's a really cool inter- interdisciplinary study anyway back to the original point so the point is that yeah this is true um uh calvin is pretty indifferent um but he and zwingli both share augustine's uh, fear about music and that it's it, it very quickly can become an idol or lead to sensuality um, and so uh, the only official music making for years I mean a long time in the Calvinist church is is going to be they will chant the Psalms they they eventually get them set metrically as a famous uh, English language uh, version of this and very simple tunes um, uh, the doxology for example um, that hymn tune comes from the um the english metrical setting of of the psalms for for the calvinist church and of course we all love that melody but that's the extent i mean that's mm-hmm. the extent uh zwingli uh goes even further uh, just not not very much singing in church um they had their songs too uh, certainly the radical you know the anabaptists uh, and the radical reformation have their songs too uh, that are polemical mm-hmm. um but they are they're not for use in church yeah, so let me let, let me speculate a little bit and, and see what you think. Um, so there's a gap, uh, you know, and it's it's not a gap from the Reformation all the way to the 20th century, but it's a gap of maybe a hundred, two hundred years until you start getting into Wes, Wesleyans and mm-hmm. stuff like that, where the Radical Reformation, and by that we just mean non-Lutheran, all the rest of the Protestants uh, today. Um, there's a gap maybe there um, where for Lutherans it was a continuation of today where music's being built on music although pietism probably takes a little bit of a chunk out of that so now you look at a Lutheran church today and then you look at a a radical reform church today so let's say you're non-denominational or maybe a classic reform like Presbyterian where a lot of the music that's Christian today seems to come out of the Radical Reformation camp rather than the Lutheran camp. Um, I wonder if there's a connection there. What do you think about, what am I missing here when I, when I say that to you as an historian? Oh, well, I mean, 
okay. So, what? So let me make sure I understand you correctly. Um, the Lutheran Church doesn't have a gap in its musical production, really. That we've been kind of building. We've we've had this solid tradition of church music from the beginning. And maybe doesn't then there isn't a push for new music as much as there is. Yeah, because we have this entire corpus and right. and. Uh, in, at least in some places, we recognize the value of that. Um, whereas in the Radical Reformation, there is not that there's a there's a gap because at least in the Reformation, they don't value music very much, and it's not until later that we get music. And now, if you go to your most Christian music that's being produced now is by your non-denominational uh, big box church down the street uh-huh. or artists that identify with those kinds of churches. Is that what you're saying? And why yes. is that? Yes. Okay. Um, revivalism. That's what it is. I mean. That, that's, that's what it is. That, um, and so um, uh, the, the Wesleys um, and, and Methodism, so that's what we're talking about there. Um, I mean, that's, a, you know, that's an early form of, of kind of revivalist. Um, you're, you're searching for God somewhere inside. You've got to find him, right? So it becomes a very experiential thing. Um, and, and the more emotion-based your uh, worship becomes, you're going to start to, we, we know that we talked about this the last time I was on the podcast, so I won't belabor it, but um, music is really good at moving emotions. Mm-hmm. Also, and we want that. It's not a necessarily no, a no, bad no. thing. We want no, no. that. But, but, but right. But we need to then uh, produce music that it becomes part of the show. And, and I, I would say that this really explodes in the 20th century where there is that kind of American, uh, especially in the, in the United States, this, this American capitalist, um, drive to m- move someone in the direction of a, uh, of a decision in some mm-hmm. sort of way and to put on the show, right? Uh, you know, popular entertainment. Well, music is one of, has always been one of the great popular entertainments. And so um, as the church wants to track closely with culture um, and, and in these, these various holy, holiness movements and, and revivalist traditions, um, we always need to be new and innovative, right? Because, because, because the, and I don't mean to make this so, it, but it is theology. Th- this music is theology. So, so if um, you need to, if the Holy Spirit doesn't stay fixed in in words, bread, wine, and water, mm-hmm. where where is he found? Well, it's somewhere different in every generation because every different generation has to then reappropriate, refine the spirit, mm-hmm. and so that means we need new worship methods and we need new music to do it, um, and. Quite frankly, you get so much of it because, because like a lot, like a lot of pop music, um, especially stuff that's de- de- designed to hit you in the heartstrings. Um, there's a there's a diminishing rate of returns the more mm-hmm. times you hear it. What right. bowls you over at first after you've listened to it on repeat for a week or two, it's good, but eh, right. it doesn't do the same thing. So we need more. And of course, the church always has to change to keep up with culture to be relevant, right? Mm-hmm. And so as the music changes, as what the kids are into or the adults, what they're into changes, then, then we need to produce more and newer to, to keep up with that. That's my thesis as an historian. Yeah. And then, and then that, that music, you come back to it maybe 20 years later and it sparks that yeah. memory. And so you can still have... You know the old timey gospel music. Mm-hmm. It once in a while sounds nice, right? Um, and and again, we're not saying that the manipulation of emotions. I think is it is not necessarily a bad thing, even though it manipulation it seems listen like bad. listen. There's nothing more emotionally manipulative if you know what you're listening to than a Bach cantata. Sure. Um, and it's and it's intentional. 
And uh, you can talk to my music history students. We went off the rails for about two weeks in which I proved it to them in grim detail. <laughs> grim detail. Um, often grim because when, when Bach wants to uh, uh, provide you with a theological truth that is uncomfortable, when he wants to get into Christ's suffering, or when he wants you to know that you are a damnable sinner, he will do things musically that, according to the rule book such as it is, but according to convention, um, let's not say that they're wrong, but they are ugly. They are grotesque. So there's, there's some famous examples, not to get too music nerdy on you, but I think you can understand this. There are examples, for instance, where he'll have, um, in, in, in his choir, he mostly had uh, uh, tween age uh, boys, mm-hmm. right? Middle school boys and, and maybe some high school boys. So they're not the greatest singers. Uh, most of them have unbroken voices. So when he, he talks about sin, he's setting a psalm in a cantata, and he talks about um, being covered in like the deepest slime of sin, right? So what, is the, what, is the, what does the voice do? It wends its way down into a register that his singers physically could not have sung. And he knew that. He rehearsed them every day. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, some modernist music historians will say, well, that's because Bach is a genius and an artist, and who cares about the performing forces? He had it in his head, and mm-hmm. so it's up to them. This is a very 19th century way of looking at things. But it's up to the performer to rise to the occasion. No, no, no. It's going to sound bad. Mm-hmm. It's going to be out of tune. It's going to be weak, unsupported. At the same time, he takes, a, he takes um, an English horn, or an, which, by the way, is not like a French horn. It's like a big oboe. Um, and in those days, instruments were not the, – the technology wasn't there to have them play in every – key equally in tune so by a series of modulations changing keys he gets he gets the piece of music into into a key that that instrument cannot play in in tune can't it's impossible those notes don't ring true those notes ring sour and now you have the combination of this voice that physically can't sing what's being asked to sing and this this um predecessor to the english horn which is playing out of tune and that's the way it is don't think bach didn't know that Mm -hmm. right yeah that's grotesque and there are lots of examples of that. So, and that's made to manipulate an emotion, mm-hmm. right? That, that, that your sin covers you in the, you are, you are in the pit of sin and it's gross. And the music is like literally gross yeah. to accompany that. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, we, we want to be manipulated. That's why we go, the, the scores of, of, of movies are so important, can make or break a movie sometimes. Uh, so the question becomes not whether oh, I'm just, I'm going to be pure and don't have this music and I'm not going to be manipulated and it's just going to be me and the word of God and me and Jesus. Well, you're, you're going to be manipulated by that, that absence of music and, and starting to think that you're pure because mm-hmm. you're, you're right. So it's not a matter of um, no music or um, music, but it's a matter, does the music fit the text? Does it... Does it manipulate the emotions? Again, that's a that's a negative word, but doesn't it manipulate the emotions in the right way like you just described, right? And so I, I love the contrast between in in, in the classic liturgy between uh, the Agnus Dei and the Sanctus, right? So almost back-to-back songs where uh, the organ is blasting um, uh, the Sanctus, holy, 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 and we think of Palm Sunday, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and then the organ groans, Mm-hmm. Lamb of God, because because now we're thinking about Good Friday. I mean that, that that's it's not a bad thing. It just fits and it's thoughtful. Right. Um, I guess 
this is just something that I don't want to forget. Uh, on, the, on the technical side with Luther, um, some of the first hymnals that he published um, uh, or had a hand in publishing uh, had pretty complicated counterpoint in them, like harmony. Uh, by the way, the, the notion of the Lutheran chorale that we're also proud of is not what they would have sung in Luther's time. So we need to be disabused of that idea. Um, it's, actual Mike, it's actually Michael Pretorius, who is a very famous Lutheran church musician um, who comes a generation after Luther that, that first sets these hymns in, um, in a way that is recognizable to us as sort of a four-part harmony with all of the voices moving in lockstep with the melody on the top. In Luther's day, the melody was in the tenor. Um, now, that's a technical musical term that doesn't always track with what we mean mm-hmm. by tenor, which is, you know, the high male voice. But mm-hmm. if you think of your red, if you think in your hymnal and you go soprano, alto, tenor, bass, the melody of the hymn was actually in the middle. Mm-hmm. And, and you had other parts around it. But the first hymnals that Luther point, put out, you taught, we were talking about raising the level. The reason that they were printed with fairly sophisticated, in fairly sophisticated settings was not for the average person in the congregation. It's because Luther says in the preface to the hymnal that these are for instruction. They are for the instruction of the school children to be brought up in, in singing and in part singing so that they could further mm-hmm. that, that endeavor as well. Absolutely. And now bringing it forward to our contemporary situation, I, I think in my parish I made a big deal about it. And I'm, I'm terrible at music, but we had a lot of talent was we're going to put our money and our time into this. We're going to teach our kids the value of music and how to sing and uh, encourage their um, playing. Every Sunday we had somebody, uh, during the school year, every single Sunday we had some child that would play um, the first part of communion so our organist could go and get communion. Mm. And so there were some times where we had people play violin that would just knock your socks off and other times we had some pretty poor versions of jesus loves me but it was all beautiful right Mm -hmm. and uh and my point to them my congregation was if you want to have musicians in the future in this congregation then you need to put your money where your mouth is right now and uh to put some money into that i you know i always thought uh you know if, if my parish was big enough and we were about 300 and 70 i think when we when we left um you know we, we weren't at the point where we needed a new a new preacher but if we ever got to that point where he said okay we need more staff i would have gotten a cantor mm-hmm. i would have insisted upon i can still preach every week and if we need to make that musician uh do some other uh tasks and so they're not always at music at first so be it um you know they'll have to bear that cross but I think you, and I think that's a truly Lutheran way to. It's not just simplify things and take it, um, wrest it from the hands of the professional musicians. It's the professional musicians raising up mm-hmm. a generation that is qualified to not only sing this church music, but hopefully from on, from some of them produce new music. Well, and so this is. Right. Now, the other, the, other, the other side of this is a sort of studied mediocrity where we feel like we've got, you know, enough of a handle on things that we can do it. And why would we need to further study mm-hmm. um, music because whatever. And, and we've seen that in our own circles. But I totally agree with you on this. By the way, I mean, we always talk about discipleship and things like that. Look, you know, we talk about losing kids out the back door after confirmation um, because they feel like they passed the test and they made it. Right. And mm-hmm. so then they're gone. You, you want them to stick around. Give them something to do. 
like a sense of a sense of responsibility and uh, and uh, and ownership in in worship in 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 you know in in the the life of the church and music is a great way is a great way to do that mm-hmm. you know they, they they then know that they're adding value and that's appreciated by by the congregation right that that, that they're you know that, that they're using their gifts to praise to praise their lord and, and even if not they're if they're not talented in music what we had for a while was we had chimes not bells yeah we can but you if you can count you can do that and so even the ones that maybe don't have the talent or the the means to pick up violin right um you can find avenues so go ahead yeah. no that, i mean i just think i that's a that's a that's a great idea and it is a very it is a very lutheran one and look um yeah if you don't prioritize these things you won't have it you know and in fact actually we see this boy you know we see this a lot in um in the big box churches because they've gone they've gone to a very professional model mm-hmm. of musicians as well um and I, I see it. It's a, I, I don't necessarily participate. The music is maybe a little bit difficult for yes. the average person to sing. Yeah. Yeah. So so not only on the one hand, I mean, you know, the, the joke here is that. And by the way, I, I just I'm just going to plug this. You know, use your sanctified judgment. But the uh, Babylon Bee is a really great kind of internet-based uh, religious satire uh, site that is very good natured. It, it's, it's insiders, right? The people that run it are, are believing Christians. And so they, they kind of, but they, they, they don't mind skewering their own. Mm-hmm. There is an endless amount of jokes about worship leaders, mm-hmm. um, especially about the tightness of their pants, <laughs> that and youth pastors, things like that. Or like, or like they have a running series of gags about, about worship bass players and how Fender, it's a big guitar producer, um, introduced the, the new uh, worship uh, bass and it's only got five frets and two strings. Regular bass has, you know, 20 frets and four or five strings um, because those are the only notes they need, right? <laughs> um, so, but point being, even though some of that music, some people complain or they joke it's really repetitive, uh, the singing style, the range of it can be above the average congregation's mm-hmm. uh, ability. The production value even. So, so at a really, at a really big megachurch, one that's kind of, according to their, you know, kind of core values and their vision is, is rocking it right, um, they literally will use professional musicians like me. Like I don't have to belong to, I wouldn't have to belong to Elmbrook. Let's just say if they needed a guitar player, a big mega church in the walk here. Yeah. Sorry. Um, but, but because they, they may not have people in their congregation. They might have actually really good players, but not up to that level that can, that can meet the production value that they're looking for. And, And so a lot of these churches would actually rather hire professionals who might be openly at odds with what their church teaches, but, but it's a paycheck, mm-hmm. and so and, and hire them in rather than using their in-house talent, you know. Um, but how replicable is that over time? I mean, yeah, you can pay for stuff, mm-hmm. but eventually, I mean, you know, and, and we should pay our musicians even if they're homegrown something. But I guess I guess what I'm saying is that you know, it's gone back that direction too. Is that there there is this this drive towards professionalization. Right. Not just using talented people in your own congregation, but like finding the objective. You know, we do this for a living, mm-hmm. people, and and and. But that takes the congregation out of the loop, right. and it and it it doesn't keep them engaged in the in the worship life of the church. Which I find so ironic that uh, you know for, for the early Reformation was, again, to wrestle some of this church music away from the professionals and put it to the people. Um, that there seems to be maybe a movement back to that. A oh, yeah. little bit that uh, it's something I see. It's mm-hmm. not something I participate in because, quite frankly, I can't participate in it, or at least 
um, the uh, some can some can sing these because they have memorized this and and they they feel okay like being at a rock concert that they can sing the songs with it. But for me, a guy like me, I wouldn't do that because it'd be embarrassing. In the same way, you know, maybe that person knew Latin and could follow along, yep. and maybe even knew how to chant because they were afforded an education. Um, um, but a lot of people it was lost on them. And so going to church was going to a show is not the right word, but maybe it is. I go and I see something that I don't participate. But that's the in. work. I yeah. mean, and that's, and then, and according to the, you know, uh, you know, medieval theology, I mean, that's good enough. Right. That's ju- just by being there and observing that sacrifice of the mass by, by, by being in the presence of, of these, these, these rites that are taking place, that that's the thing that, that work makes you right before God because you, you, you showed up. Um, and so, yeah. And, and, and of course we're, we're not justified anymore because we sing hymns in church. Mm-hmm. No, but, but, um, you know, yeah. Yeah. And there, and we see at best, we see this praise as proclamation of the gospel. Um, and, uh, and, and then there's a little bit of a difference there. It's, yeah. it's much more word oriented and that's not to say that there isn't, I mean, oh my goodness, such great chant and so such great music in the medieval church and, and good stuff even coming, um, from the professionals today. We, we're not yeah. bashing that. We're just saying, hold on here a little bit. Um, let's think about this in a historical perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as far as American Lutheranism goes, um, uh, the the dirty secret here is that, and in fact, um, uh, for instance, say um, the uh, the liturgy in uh, the Lutheran hymnal, 1941. So this would have been the hymn book for the Synodical Conference. Um, almost all of the uh, almost all the chants, responses, tones, all these things, they're actually they're actually um, Anglican. Mm-hmm. Yep. The English, English, you know, a lot of the best loved, I'm going to put, you know, air quotes through the podcast here, uh, Lutheran hymns, they're Wesleyan hymns because, right. because the Wesleys knew their way around a tune. I mean, they write some. And, and it's in English. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. And so it doesn't come to a second hand out of, out of German or out of Latin um, in a way that can be wooden or stilted. I mean, it, it, it speaks. And again, just bring it back to Luther. This is, this is why he was so careful when he did his, his German mass because he didn't, he didn't want it to come across as just, you know, forcing right. something that's that's born that's natural in this idiom Latin mm-hmm. and in and in Roman chant um, into into German, right? And so you're right. So some of these Wesley hymns, I mean, they're easy because they're in English and they sing well in English and and they have really great tunes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, but if, I just think I just I, I always find it like just deliciously ironic. I mean, and I. <laughs> I grew up, you know, a little bit with, with the Lutheran hymnal too, but you know, that's the, the Lutheran mm-hmm. hymn. It's, mm-hmm. That's, that's where real Lutheranism is. Well, I suppose if you like it inflect, inflected heavily by the book of common prayer, <laughs> right, I suppose. Right. Well. And, and I, I can remember some quip by somebody who uh, was an American Lutheran and was over in Europe and, and they looked at the, the Lutheran hymnal and said, um, this is a reformed hymnal <laughs> and, and that's not a cut. It, it, it's, it's fine. It's, it's great. It's whatever. But I, I think to your point, I, I once said in Bible class, I said, okay, everybody take about a piece of paper. I handed out pieces of papers and pens. And I said, write down your top three hymns. And, uh, and then I collected them all. And I said, I'm going to collect all these and I'm going to give you the, the top, whatever, 10, um, next week. But I'll guarantee you that only I said, only one of them would be Lutheran, written by a Lutheran, and only two of them would be German. So it was both to uh, say, 
don't be so proud of yourself of your but then on the other side this idea oh this is all just uh german whatever blah 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 and we're american now i'm like yeah you're you're setting up a straw man there so what what, I, what were the do you remember what were the results yeah, i'd be interested i was i was wrong there's oh. there was only one lutheran one i said there's gonna be two lutheran ones and what and and then a couple german i was wrong the only lutheran one that made it was a mighty fortress oh, of course and then the only other one written in German was uh, Silent Night. Okay, but definitely Roman Catholic. Right. So, and and uh, I thought there would be a little bit more, but there, but there wasn't. And, and it, it wasn't, it's not necessarily right or wrong. I'm just saying there's these common messages out there right. that, that are not correct. No, they're not. <laughs> I mean, look, look um, I just have to ask because it's a personal bugbear of mine. Um, was Eagle's Wings on that list? Um, <laughs> I can't remember, but I'm, pr- I'm, I'm thinking probably, probably. so. So, um, uh, okay. So while we're kind of on this a little bit, it's tangential, but this Luther again, um, another, another myth that I really, really want to put across the listeners. Cause you hear it all the time. Um, a mighty fortress is not a drinking song. The melody <laughs> yeah, to that is not a contrafact on a drinking <laughs> song. So let me, I, let me walk you through this a little bit. Um, uh, early on around the reformation, um, the earliest Reformation hymnals did not attribute authors. Um, copyright wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just they, they didn't put their names on stuff um, as often. Uh, the problem was is that uh, because it's the wild, wild west for printing, people wanting to capitalize on the Lutheran Reformation and the name of Martin Luther specifically often attributed hymns to him that were not his, mm-hmm. which then caused Luther to have to come out and say, um, no, this hymn is not my hymn. This is terrible. Um, or this hymn is fine, but it's not mine. And then have to start to put his name on things, right? Okay. Um, but we believed for a long time as historians that Luther was actually the author of most, if not all, of the hymns that are attributed to him. When we get into the 20th century, late 19th century, early 20th century, and into, into critical scholarship, um, and this is the same method that gets applied to the, you know, the higher uh, uh, criticism that gets applied to the Bible, mm-hmm. where we start to say, well, we can't be sure of any authorship, you know, um, and chances are the person that it's attributed to didn't write it. The pendulum swung all the way, swung all the way back on, on Luther to the point where uh, there was a, a prominent historian who said that there's no way that he wrote any of the hymns that were attributed to him. And this is kind of where this notion that a lot of these hymns attributed to Luther were just taken from drinking songs. And of course, Luther's famous quip, why should the devil have all the good tunes, this sort of thing. Um, the, the, the current state of scholarship um, and the other author I would, I would suggest on this is a guy named Robin Lever, L-E-A-V-E-R. Um, I think he's British. And I think he actually does come from the kind of the Anglican uh, tradition, but he's done fantastic work on, on Lutheran music. Um, but uh, he, um, uh, the, the state of research is more, more to the point that, um, that, that, we, that Luther did write most of the stuff. It swung back. Um, and, and we know this because we know he's a competent musician and we've, we've discovered things um, that we know are in his hand that we, we just know that he was perfectly. That's not to say, by the way, that some of these hymn tunes weren't pre-existing, that they didn't come from popular songs and things like that. But it's not this, this sort of, I don't know, like, like Veggie Tales-esque crusade to take, you know, to take dirty pop songs and then, you know, let the, you get the Christian version of it. That's, <laughs> that's not what's happening here. Um, and, but we do know that like, a mighty fortress, this has been fought about forever. Luther is perfectly capable from the things that we've seen in his hand that he wrote was perfectly capable 
uh, of of composing out that melody. That's not that's not even a question. I mean, he uh, we know that he was uh, able to write, for example, um, um, his his motto verse, I, "I shall not die, but live." Um, when he was at Coburg during the um, trying to man, you know manipulate things if, in Augsburg, so this is the Augsburg Confession. Fifteen thirty, yeah. Yeah. So he's there, and he's not allowed to go because he's going to get killed if he goes. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's writing like letters to. Everybody every to every everybody every day to the point where some people say, please knock it off. Um, you know, we got this. Um, he was also writing to the names escaping me. I'm sorry. But um, he was. Oh, you know what? It's in my volume 53 of Luther's works here. I'm sorry. Here. Um, um, well, I'm looking for it. Thank uh, Ludwig Senfel. Okay. Um, uh, who was a professional court musician and was a friend of his, never officially became Lutheran, um, but, uh, but was, you know, when Luther's writing to him, just wishing he would die and things like that, or, you know, the end was at hand, despairing and asking him to write a funeral motet. And a motet, by the way, is, uh, was a popular genre back then. Really all it means is any sung thing in parts, okay? Um, on this verse, Senful says, it's not so bad at that as that, and he sends him back a motet on I Shall Not Die But Live. So you get to stick around. You have things to do. Cheer up, buddy. Um, and Senfels is quite masterful. You can tell he's a pro musician. But we also know that, that Luther took a crack at it just for fun mm-hmm. to write his own um, multi-part on this. And we have it. Um, and it's, it's, not, you know, it's not a masterpiece, but it is perfectly uh, competent, let's just say. So we know that, we know that he was capable of, 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 of composing in, in, in many parts. And so, and so uh, he's, more, he's more hands-on with the creation of uh, the liturgical music and, and some of these hymn tunes than we think, or than, than, than maybe the generation before us thought. Sure, sure. Excellent. Well, we, we're probably at the time where we need to close here. And so um, I'll give you the last word here, Jeremy, if there's anything you want to say, like a to, to people out there who are thinking about Lutheran music? Um, well, Mine is put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, um, support it, yeah. right? Uh, I, think, I think one of the biggest takeaways that we, can, uh, that we can learn from Luther is that music is valuable for its own sake. It's also a powerful uh, way to communicate the gospel. Um, and, and in our churches, we really need to not uh, lose sight of that that it's on the one hand it is a good thing to meet people where where they are and and we don't necessarily have to have the the most complicated um, or up-to-date uh, avant-garde you know musical things happening in our churches but at the same time it is a very wise investment like Mike said to put your money where your mouth is and be interested in uh, training your lay people adults and children alike in the value of what they have um, in the in, in the connection between words and music, and and to raise their understanding, because all it can do is deepen their understanding of of, of the gospel um, of, of 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 Jesus' words, uh, you know, uh, and 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 the the evangelists and things like that that are that are set to music or paraphrased for music. You know, uh, the gospel is proclaimed through music. We hear these central things that that uh, Christ has died, Christ has risen, He's ascended, He's coming back. And he's, he's forgiven your sins, and all these are communicated through music. And we have a particularly, I think, um, robust tradition of that in the Lutheran Church. And whether or not you choose to use, you know, 
melodies and settings from the 17th century is truly free. And, and Luther would have said the same thing. It is, it, it is not something where we're going to set down a law, but understand the, please try to understand the value of it and, 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 it, and, and don't think that it's an incidental thing and that the cultivation of the, it's a lot of last words, I'm sorry, but That's the cultivation fine. of it, however you choose to do it, it should be done well and it can't, it, it, that has to be done intentionally. It has to be. And freedom just to do whatever we want um, isn't really no freedom at all, but just freedom to our own, our own sinful desires. And freedom's got to be grounded in Christ and the gospel. And so with that, having this gospel of freedom, and when we look at music, we can love music for itself. We don't need to be afraid of it, and we can use it in all of its diversity. Uh, we can do with music the same thing we do with everything else, which is what, Dr. Zimmer? Let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down Get with my party and I begin to cry I don't care what the people are thinking I'm not drunk, I'm just a tanker I set them up, another round I set them up, another round I set them up, another round One more round won't get me down